Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 8, and by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in this land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that, was, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, as we... Think about faith and look at the life of Abraham and look at our own lives and consider what it is that you are doing. Father, I confess that I want nothing more, nothing less than your will, your desire, what you want to do. May we know and follow you. May we be a people of faith. May we hear your call and be obedient. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next to love... Faith is one of the greatest virtues that the scripture gives. I believe, you know, faith, hope, and love, these three things remain. And as those things stand out there, and as you read the New Testament, it seems that love takes the pride of place. First Corinthians said that if we have faith, it can move mountains, but we have not love, we are nothing. And so love, in a number of different reasons and places, I think has the pride of place as the great mark and virtue of God's people, of who he is and what he works into our lives, but faith comes in as a close second to that, I believe. Faith is that thing um, that God distinguishes in his people, literally from the rest of the world. Faith marks us, distinguishes us, and makes us, quite literally, makes us God's people. So in verse 1, we read that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are not seen. It's this assurance, it's this conviction, assurance of things that are hoped for. It's a conviction of things that we don't see. And this assurance and this conviction is central to the Christian life, of what it means to be God's person, to be God's people. Faith believes, faith saves, and faith works. Talk about those. I've written them in your bulletin as an outline. Faith believes, it saves, and it works. Faith believes. This thing that we call faith, what it does is it believes. I don't know if that's redundant or not. Faith believes. Uh, but, but it seems to me that this thing, this noun, this thing that we call faith, that people are to have, what it does is that it believes and it trusts. What does it believe? Does it trust? First and foremost, God's word and God's promises. That's what faith latches onto. That is the object of God's faith. Now, in his word and in his promises, we, we receive, we find the person of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the object of our faith and our hope and our trust. But he comes to us in the gospel. He comes to us in God's word and in a series of promises. We don't see Christ this morning. He doesn't stand before the eyes 
uh, uh, that we can see. He stands before the eyes of faith as he is presented in his word and in his gospel. And his word determines then how we see and interpret the world. Right, it's God's word and his promises as we sit here this morning and we're here and not somewhere else because we see the world in a certain way. Because we interpret reality in a certain way. We live according to certain principles and promises and all of those are what are defined for us in God's word. Right, it is his word and his promises that determine our worldview. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3. He says it's by faith that we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We weren't there. We didn't see it happen. We don't have any video footage of it. We don't have, you know, it's something I can't prove to you this morning by any means. But it is by faith that we believe that the universe was created by the word of God, that he spoke, and it was. And he said, let there be, and it took shape. And existence, in the beginning, God created. That is, that is the statement of faith. God, in the beginning, God created. That there is a maker of heaven and earth. It is his word and his promises that tell us that, that God exists. That God is holy. That God has created. That God has created us in his own image. And so that says something about who we are and the dignity of humanity. It also says that humanity has fallen, that there is a, a brokenness, and it explains much in the world. It, it is his word that tells us that, that, in this, that in this brokenness, God has done something, that God has determined to save, and that God has done something in giving us a Savior, that he's come to his lost world, and that he has lived the life we failed to live, and he died the death that we can't afford to die. And so by faith, we see the cross. Not as just another Roman execution, but as the place of God's saving work in history and in the world. By faith. I believe that Jesus is coming again. That death does not win. That Jesus is risen. That Jesus reigns. And that Jesus will come again. These are, these are, these are unseen things. They're things that are not scientifically verifiable this morning or if you gave me a laboratory. You know, these are, these, are, these are things that come to us through his word and through his promises and the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.18, it's there in your bulletin. It says, as we look not to the things that are seen, they're empirically verifiable, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There are spiritual truths that are, that are revealed to us. They are unseen to the eyes of physical demonstration. Faith believes. Faith trusts in unseen, eternal realities. And these unseen, eternal realities in many ways are more important than those that are seen. It defines the way that we understand life and the way that we live. And so we make choices. We're going to get up early and we're going to go worship. Faith believes, but faith also saves. Faith is that instrument that God uses to save us. It is his choice. It is the instrument of his choosing. Faith sees and believes 
the unseen truths of the gospel, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he came from the Father, that he came on mission, that he accomplished that mission, and that in his own body on the cross, he bore our sins to bear away the penalty and the power of them that we could be free, free to to return us to God, as our catechism question said. He frees us from the power and the penalty of sin, and and he brings us to God. 1 Peter 1.8, there in your bulletin, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And we rejoice in a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We believe in an unseen but risen and real Christ who lives and reigns. Ephesians 2.8, it says, it's by grace you've been saved in this through your faith. Faith is that instrument that saves our souls by believing the gospel and the unseen Jesus and connecting us to him. Faith believes and faith saves and faith works. It works. In other words, faith produces a certain kind of life. It works. When you plug something into the electrical outlet and there's power and something you know, it happens. It, it works. And we say, if you plug it in and something like that, you know, it doesn't work. And he is saying that faith plugs us in, in a very real, very spiritual, spiritually real way, it plugs us into that which is unseen. It connects us to Christ. And, 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 and in that sense, it works. It produces a certain kind of life. It changes things. It bears an inevitable fruit. Jesus said, if you make the tree good, it will bear good fruit. And faith makes the tree good. It connects us to Christ and saves us. And so it bears good fruit. And so there's this life that is produced out of it. James chapter 2 is there in your bulletin. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And here we're, we're reading this morning and spending our time in his call to go to a land that, that God would show him. Um, but... But Hebrews actually goes on later in this same chapter, down uh, in the later verses in 17 and following, where this same test with Isaac is mentioned, is the activity of Abraham's faith. And so James says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. And what James is saying is not that works save us, but what he is saying is faith is active. And where there's real faith, there's real activity. And you can see it in his life. And we saw it in Abraham's life when when his faith created a certain kind of life and obedience. You could see it. Faith, he says, was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And that it was completed, the word in the the Greek there grabs this idea of perfection or maturity or you know, it, it's completed, it's, it's fulfilled, it's proven, it's, it's evidenced, it's demonstrated, uh, it's shown to be there, it's shown to be real, it's shown to have power in life, it's made visible in his life. Faith is something in very many ways that you can see, and if it doesn't produce a certain kind of life, if it doesn't produce a certain set of beliefs and behaviors in the life of those who has it. The Bible says you need to take a hard look. It might not be real faith. 
is real faith works. There's a spiritual reality underneath it, a born-againness underneath it, a, a new life in Christ underneath it. Faith is always doing something. If you read this chapter, everybody, you know that play on words, the Hall of Fame, and we have in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith. Uh, of, of men and women who believed God through history. And it starts out in verse 4, you know, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice, and he does it by faith. Enoch is taken up, and we see that, that his whole life then was pleasing to God by faith. And we see Abraham all the way down through a lot of the rest of the chapter until you get to verse 20, and you say Isaac uh, lived by faith, and Jacob lived by faith, and Joseph lived by faith in verse 23 in Moses, and we see in his life he lived by faith. Verse 29, and by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. It was by faith that they ventured out with the Egyptians on their heels and, a, uh, you know, the, the uh, lake in front of them, the sea in front of them. By faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down. Verse 32, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, they do, they believed. No, it was more than that. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They, made, they were made strong out of their weakness. They become mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead. And it goes, and it goes on of all the things. It says that faith did stuff. Amazing stuff. It, it, it created a, a kind of a life that was used by God. For me, that is at the heart of what it means to have a life of faith. John Brown there in your bulletin said, Faith, looking at chapter 11 there, faith in enabled individuals to perform very difficult duties. I would say impossible things. I don't know why he goes so light on that one. It, it, it enabled individuals to do impossible things. And to endure very difficult trials and to obtain very important blessings. Faith believes and faith saves and faith works. And it creates a, a life and, and God uses that life to do amazing things. It sacrifices and it goes and it fights and it, and it lives for God. So let's zero back in on Abraham then because Abraham is the archetypical man of faith. That's the way the Bible holds him from the earliest pages of Scripture to the end. Abraham is this archetypical man of faith. He's not necessarily the first guy, but the clearest guy, right? Romans 4.3, there in your bulletin under the second point, what does the Scripture say? New Testament, Romans, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by his faith. He was the man of faith. When Paul wants to explain the gospel, when Paul wants to explain New Testament faith, what does it mean to put your faith in Christ and be saved? What does it mean right, to be this people? And, and he doesn't look around and point to Peter or to James or to he looks at Abraham. It's behold. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It saved him. It changed everything. And all the way through the New Testament, then he is this archetypical guy. He stands as the father. We're told he is the father of all who believe. 
He is the paterfamilias, right? He is, he is the patriarch. He is the believer that stands at the head of the stream. Galatians 3, 7, there in your bulletin, it says, it, it is those of faith who are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. Right? So if you're a person of faith, Abraham is your father. He is a father of all the faithful. He stands at the head of the stream and the lineage of Abraham then is a people of faith. So in verse 8 it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out from that place. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he was willing to offer up Isaac. He received the promises, believing that God would raise him from the dead, believing that God would fulfill his promises. And the call of Abraham then is active and practical. He was called to go and he obeyed. He was called to sacrifice and he was willing. It was this obedient faith, this active faith. And what faith required of Abraham was risky obedience. In both cases, can you imagine being Abraham in either case? Sitting where you are in your life right now. In either of these calls, the one in verse 8 and 9 or the one in verse 17 and 18, either one of those calls comes into your life. And how would we fare? Right? They're, they're challenging. There's a call here on Abraham's life for a risky obedience that few of us really can even resonate with. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, there in your bulletin, it said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. From your country and your kindred and your father's house, pack it up and go. Abraham is 75 years old, and he says, You know, everything, all the family that's close at hand, pack it up and go. Your country that you're comfortable in, although you know you know the customs and culture here, the food is familiar, you know, you know where the grocery store is, you know, you know your neighbors. Everything. He's 75 years old, and God said, pull up your roots, leave all that is familiar, and go to the place where I'm telling you to go. Not because even necessarily that you want to. Not because it was part of your bucket list. You know, not because, you know, whatever it is, it's simply the only thing you have to explain Abraham doing what he did is simply this. God said, go, and I went. Why? Because, you know, why does God call him to do it even? Sometimes we sit back. My wife and I are wrestling with that. I know others who are wrestling with that. Why does God do what he does when he does it? Sometimes his timing seems really poor. I'm finding today and yesterday is timing really poor. And I step back. That is my pride and my arrogance to presume to know what is best in any sense. But we don't know. Why does God call Abraham at, at this stage of his life to do what he intends to do? And, I, and the simple answer is this. The simple answer is this. It's not about Abraham. God intends to use Abraham. And this call wasn't about what was best in that sense. I mean, it is because God's will works that way, but not, at least not in the way Abraham understood what was best for him. What God was doing was he was intending to use Abraham. And he called him to do something that, that may be foolish in his eyes, was uncomfortable and risky. Why? 
because he was positioning Abraham and his family for generations to come. Abraham could only see glimpses of it. God had made him promises. I'm going to bless you, and you will be a blessing. And I'm going to, through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth, and I'm going to give you a land, and your, your progeny your, will be as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, and I'm going to do all this stuff, and you get these crazy promises, which sound wonderful, but if you had them, I don't know how much they would drive us. So Abraham hears these promises, and he's called to go. Because God is investing in generations to come. <clears throat> we have to see that God uproots Abraham and sends him packing, not for Abraham, but for his children and his children's children and his children's children. Ultimately, in some sense, it's for us. And for the generations to follow, Abraham was obedient. Abraham paid a price to invest in the generations that would come. Lynn and I were married in I didn't tell you this. Sorry, honey, I'm going to tell just a little bit of our story. I get in trouble when I throw my family under the bus on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. <clears throat> but just our story, my story too, so I'm going to tell it that way. We got married in June of 1988. And in uh, July of 1988, we moved away from our family to Virginia, from New Jersey to Virginia. As home missionaries, we spent the next seven years as home missionary, raising our own money, living at poverty level, fundraising and working with college kids in, in uh, several colleges in central Virginia, central Shenandoah Valley. But in the midst of all of this, I felt God calling me to seminary. I felt like God had something more for me, and that's, that's what he had for me. He wanted me to go to seminary. I looked at seminaries, Covenant in St. Louis, looked at RTS, looked at Westminster, even looked at Gordon, Conwell, and looked at others, and I kept in, in Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia was on the list because I knew people who were there, and there were professors there that were really interested in studying it, and long and short of it is, after a lot of deliberation, God kept bringing us back to go into Regent in Canada, which had all kinds of risks, leaving our country and our healthcare system and all these things with a young family and having to try to come back at some point, and a lot of extra work and a variety of risks, but there it was at the age of 30 with a wife and two children. I was convinced that God wanted me to go to seminary. I believed it. At that time, we had been married for seven years. We had a small townhouse that we owned. It wasn't much, but it was ours. We had a small townhouse. I had a ministry, a sizable ministry. In fact, I had a ministry at that point with college kids at James Madison that was somewhat larger than, than this church. On, a, on, a, on a, our weekly gatherings, we had 300-plus students on a regular basis. We had a, we had a good ministry. We had a home. We had a, a ministry. We had a great church. I loved our church in Virginia. One of the pains of leaving that, that, that was that. We had great friends. Some of our best friends in life are out of that church still. We had friends. We had a church. We had ministry. We had home. We had roots. But I was convicted that God was calling me to seminary. And so we literally liquidated everything we owned, almost. Sold our townhouse. We had two cars. We sold one car. We had a series of garage sales at which we sold about half of our worldly goods. And so we put about, which wasn't much in a little townhouse, and we put half of our worldly goods in a basement and took the rest and literally spent every single penny we owned on our education in a foreign country. could have given that money to the poor. Sometimes 
Those are the kind of questions that we ask. There are a lot of different things that we spend money on. Couldn't we give that money to the poor? Jesus told one guy who was trying to follow him, and, and the guy was asking questions, and Jesus said, well, here's the deal. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then follow me. Well, I already done the hard part. I had sold everything. Almost. Argument could be made. You should have given it to the poor. Jesus says such things to some people. Why not skip seminary and give it away? There's a certain logic to it. You're already doing ministry without a seminary degree. You don't need it. So why not use your money this way and press on? I felt God was telling me to invest everything I had in an education. To get a a seminary education that would posture me for a lifetime of ministry. And that even though I had a good ministry there, there were other things that God wanted to do. And it wasn't about me. It was truly, truly before God, a sense of what he wanted to do. And that's what we did. We got out of the boat. (laughs) It's harder, as I said, as we get older. But sometimes we serve God's purposes in his kingdom by giving it away. Sometimes we serve God's purposes in his kingdom by investing his money in, in infrastructures and educations and things like that. And I believe both are absolutely and positively good and righteous things to do before God. The question isn't which one is right. The question is which one is God asking you to do. That's the only question before us. How does God want to posture you for the next 50 years? See, God does not just call us to faith. He calls us to a life of faith. He calls us to live what we believe. He produces a certain kind of a life. A life of faith is a life of obedience. It's a life of surrender. And it's a life of risky adventure. Let me just touch these very quickly. It's a life of faith is a life of obedience. It's a life shaped by God's word, his call, his command. And so faith obeys. And we saw that with Abraham in verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And sometimes to obey takes great faith. And I know for him it did. Think of the things God was asking him to do with his whole family and with his child. At one point, by faith, by faith, he obeyed. Faith obeys, even when it doesn't fully understand. Often like a child, we sing that song, trust and obey, trust and obey. Believe and have faith and obey, because sometimes logic won't get you there. If Abraham sat down and logic out, he wouldn't have done anything that God asked him to do. And sometimes... Faith calls us to trust and obey. That's the way it's always been. Think of Israelites marching around Jericho seven times and blowing trumpets. They look silly. Right? They look silly. Do it. Trust and obey. Just do what I say. Walk into the river and it will part for you. Okay? But nothing's going to happen until you walk in the river. Okay? Walk into the river. Go wash in the river and you will be clean. Okay? Don't really want to do that. Send some of your army home. You got too many men. Can you have too many men when you're going to battle? Uh, you know, what? Right, God, you sometimes it's like a child who just does what their parent says because the parent knows more than we do. And you trust and you obey. There's no better way. Abraham did the will of God. He did the hard thing because it was God's thing and it was obedience. And so the life of faith is a life of obedience. It's also a life of surrender because obedience can be costly, can it? 
Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Right, Abraham, leave your family, your heritage, your home, and your father's house. Sacrifice your son. Obedience is costly. It meant surrender. Of, for Abraham, it meant the surrender of everything to do what God was telling him to do. He leaves his pagan heritage, his country, his people, his father's house, and he follows God's call. And that's the same for every believer as we go to follow Christ, isn't it? He calls us to leave your heritage in one sense, your country, your people, your father's house, if that's what it takes. Whatever it takes is Jesus is the primary allegiance. I think that's what he means when he says, unless you hate your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, your, you know, even your own life, you, know, you can't follow me. Because it takes this allegiance, this surrender of everything. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for his sake, I would suffer the loss of all things. I would count them like rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that, that suffering the loss of all things becomes a way of life for the believer. Because when Jesus calls, he bids a man come and die. When Jesus calls, he says, deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me. It marks the whole life of faith. It's a life of obedience, it's a life of surrender, and it's a life of risky adventure. <laughs> Most of us are hobbits. You knew I was going to go there. You know, We would definitely get there one way or another. Tolkien writes his whole four books and his thing, and he writes himself into the books as a hobbit. Tolkien is the hobbit. Tolkien is the... He's the person who craves comfortable predictability. That's, that's the hobbit. They like home and hearth. And they, don't, they like predictability. They don't like adventure. They, they look askance at people who like adventure. And any among them who seek adventure or participate in such adventures, you know, hold this weird place in there. You can even see as you watch the movies, you'll see him looking at them like, yeah, you guys are. Hobbits crave comfortable predictability. Most of us are hobbits. The call of providence sends them into the wide world, they, not knowing where they're going, quite like Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed, and he was called to go out of that place. Then he was to receive his, go out to the place he was to receive his inheritance. And it says, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Can you imagine? Not knowing where he was going. Life of faith has this sense of kind of controlness. God is in charge, and I'm not. It's an out-of-controlness because we don't live to do our own will. We live to do the will of God. And God is not tame. He's not tame. He's not comfortably predictable, at least in the Bible that I read. He is not comfortably predictable. He is not a tame God. Abraham went out. He didn't know where he was going, but God knew, and that was all that mattered. He didn't, he didn't know where he was being led, but he knew the one who was leading. And he trusted, and he surrendered, and he obeyed. And he walked out. He walked by faith and not by sight. The math didn't add up. Pure logic cannot calculate the will of God. The math didn't add up, but Abraham went anyway. 
so many times it sounds logical, it sounds reasonable, but the problem is simply this, God is not in it. <laughs> and God is saying something else. What is God calling you to do this morning? What is God calling you to do? Faith produces a life of faith. And I know for me, even as I've prepared these last two sermons, a lot of it is I'm preaching to myself. Because I like comfortable predictability, but what is God calling you to do? What sacrifices need to be made? What kingdoms need to be conquered? What fires need to be quenched? What lions' mouths need to be shut and closed so that God's will might be done? What army needs to be put to flight? What is it that God wants to do? I love verse 34 when it says that faith made them strong out of weakness. Faith asks this question, and it's a question that I've been asking, genuinely asking, and I'm, I'm willing to hear the answer any which way the answer comes. If the desire is truly and genuinely this, and this is the question of faith, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want of me? How do you want to use me? What do you want to accomplish? And those people, as, they, as we ask that question, it says they, they conquer kingdoms, and they put armies to flight, and they... And they stop the mouths of lions and, and things happen. God works and he enables the work of their hands. Sometimes there's a time to speak up and to, to step up and to step out and to believe and to see God do something. The older I get, the more risk averse I get. The more hobbit-like I get. But at the heart of a life of faith is the deep desire that it not be about me. To be about literally, deeply, honestly before God. What do you want to do with me? What is your plan? What is your desire? Luke 17, 5, last thing in your bulletin, the apostles said to the Lord Jesus, increase our faith. What a prayer, my friends, this morning. That is my prayer. It's been my prayer these last couple of weeks, whether we move or not, whatever happens. May this be our prayer, driven by a deep desire to be used of God. Lord Jesus, increase our faith. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning as people of the word, people of faith, people who believe that by your word the world was created, and by that same word kingdoms are conquered, and by that same word fires are quenched, and by that same word you're building a kingdom and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And by your word, you call things that are not as though they were. And Father, increase our faith. Whatever we do from this day forward, whether we plant or whether we uproot, whatever we do, increase our faith. That we may be used of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.